morning. Uh, yeah, the reading is from Exodus 20. Um, you can follow that in the sheet as you got in the way in, or it's on page 61 in the Pew Bibles if you want to follow it along and with me. The Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not withhold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let the Lord speak, or God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. These verses along that'll be really helpful on your sheet you'll notice that I've, I've just taken the reading up to verse 17 because I, I will just focus really on that section it's a bit of an impossible task really to try to summarize all of everything that you could say about the ten commandments in one sermon um, and indeed in just sort of 30 minutes but we'll try to at least do something but we'll focus on on those verses there after the plagues 
and the Red Sea rescue that we've seen through the book of Exodus, this giving of these Ten Commandments is probably the most memorable event in the whole book. But something that I really want you to see, and hopefully you might have as well picked this up in some of the way that Hugh was speaking earlier about God's covenant and the way that he relates to us, is that these Ten Commandments are the ethical response to the salvation God has already given, not the precursor to it. Let me try to make that even simpler. You don't follow these commands to be saved. You follow these commands because you're saved. So that God's grace shapes the way we live. So that I I hope that by the end of it, you'll not have any sort of sense that God has worked in a different way in the Old Testament to the new. I, I, I hope that if I've done a decent job, you won't feel that disconnect. So I'm going to split these commands in half and we'll think about the vertical commands. We'll ask that question, who do you serve? And then we'll think about the horizontal commands, that it's not all about you. Um, through COVID, one of the sort of bright ideas that we had as a family was to start a games night. And we had very mixed results sort of with that. We saw all these lovely sort of pictures and videos of other nice families doing it. And, um, you know, our efforts didn't quite end up like that and hence there were no social media posts um, it usually ended in someone or at least one person storming off uh, unhappy sort of with it and one of the sort of lessons you sort of got from it in, in debriefing is that it's really really important just clarifying the rules at the beginning and making sure that everybody really does get it that we need to know what it is we're supposed to be doing Uh, For example, Cluedo becomes really confusing and really long-winded and frustrating if people just go rogue and start lying about the cards they do and don't have. It's just realised that the game that really should be quite simple is not. And the people here needed to know the rules. What was it that God expected for them to live like? And so these first four commandments that we see in verses 1 to 11 are all vertical What I mean is they all relate to our behaviour and our response towards God, not people, primarily. Look there at verse 2, because it's interesting how uh, Moses starts this off and records this for us. I am the Lord your God, God says, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And these commands come, and God can rightly give them, because he has rescued them to freedom already. We've said throughout the course of the book of Exodus a number of times that freedom is pictured and portrayed and explained as not being finding personal autonomy and self-expression, not being free to be who I am, free to do what I want, what makes me feel good, but being free to live under God's gracious rule. Under Egypt, they weren't able to do that. They were under the rule of Pharaoh who oppressed them, who abused them who exploited them, who murdered them. These commands are given as an expression of the freedom that God gives. And so his first command there, verse 3, is, you shall have no other gods before me. And Christianity is, and always has been, and always will be, an inclusively exclusive faith. That sounds like jargon, doesn't it? So what on earth do I mean? What I mean is that Christianity is inclusive, It is a message, it's a community that is open to everyone, everywhere. 
It doesn't prejudice based on class, on wealth, on race, on background, on success or failure. It's inclusive. But it is exclusive because God is not a God amongst gods. And he's been very eager to present this throughout the course of the events of Exodus. He's not a God amongst gods. The Exodus showed that God was systematically destroying the gods of Egypt. And Jesus is no less concerned with this. John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Orthodox Christianity does not allow itself to be put as a way amongst other ways. It is the way. He is the truth and the life. To have no other gods before me. And then these next commands here are really sort of expanding on that first command. I don't know if you notice that, but they're really just ways that you would fulfill having no other gods. Well, don't make idols. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath. They're all actually avoided if you can keep that first commandment. But they do flesh out that first commandment a bit further, don't they? That what, some of the ways you might see that you have no other gods before me is to indeed not have any other idols with you of any form, to not take the name of God in vain, and to remember the Sabbath and to honour it. And we won't get in today into exactly how that looks for us and what day you should take that on and how that should look. Uh, that's maybe a talk for, for another time, but suffice to say, I think it's really just the principle of resting at some point. But we are prone to having other functional gods much more than we may like to think. As we read that second commandment, not to have a carved image, we might think, oh, this is low-hanging fruit. That's an easy one. I, I don't have any gods of dolphins or monkeys or I don't know, whatever else in my house. But we are more prone to break this than we might think. Martin Luther, in his commentary, the Protestant reformer, as he's thinking about the commandments here and reflecting particularly on this command here, he has this point that actually we, we maybe do this much more than we think. And so he says and he explains, it really comes down to what you think a God is. Sometimes we would think that the God there would just be that sort of statue or that totem pole or what have you. And well, I don't have those, so I don't have other gods. He says instead... That now, I say, upon which you set your heart and put your trust is properly your God. Do you see that? The thing you set your heart on, that is, your affections are pegged to it, whether you're happy, sad, scared, content. And the thing you put your trust in is properly your God. That means it doesn't have to be a deity necess necessarily. And it also means that your functional God, your actual one that you live your life out of, may not be the one that you say you worship. Let me push it a bit further. You may not have the household gods in the corner. You may not have a little shrine. But for example, what if we looked at our bank statements? What are the biggest outlays? What are the things that are commanding most of our resources? What if we took a look at our diaries? What's taking up most of the time and the energy and the attention? Perhaps what if we looked at 
the amount of hours clocks for screen time on our phones or on our televisions? What if we looked at the search history? What might we find as to the things that actually are taking precedence in our life? And we might begin to find some things that are at least jostling for position with God. And so don't have other gods, don't carve for yourself idols. There's a rationale there in verse 5 and 6. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. We've seen this expressed throughout the course of Exodus so far. We've seen it that God has destroyed Egypt and he has freed Israel. But notice something of the ratios. Four generations of judgment, thousands of generations of love. It's important that you see that. That God is, by and large, far more gracious than he ever is punitive. Be sure he is a judge. He is a holy and a righteous judge. But he is far more about love than he is judgment. And so there's a rationale to keeping the commands there, isn't there? And thirdly, we're commanded, verse 7 here, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The word there, vain, is a great word, but it's an old-fashioned word, and it's lost some of the meaning in kind of common uh, English today. Um, the word there in the Hebrew, it can mean something like emptily or falsely. And so it extends a little further than we think. It's not just the obvious forms of blasphemy here that's a problem. It's also don't dare to claim the name of God in words only and your life not reflect that. That is emptily claiming the name of God. You know, for example, every single US president has claimed to be a Christian. Most of them, I'm sorry to burst the bubble, were not that's claiming the name in vain, isn't it? After every disaster or crisis, people on X, formerly Twitter, the most ridiculous name ever, isn't it? Say, thoughts and prayers. They don't mean it. It's just an empty platitude that you know you should say. 95% of people who say that don't mean that. They're not on their knees that night praying for people. It's just the thing that you say. They're invoking a sort of sense of faith that they don't have. It's empty. It's false. Don't do it. And then fourthly, there's that command there to remember the Sabbath. And the point is that this rest reflects accepting your dependence on God and honours your maker, that you are human. You are not divine. You are limited. You can only do so many things. You can only be in one place at one time. There is only so much that you can manage. That isn't a weakness. That isn't a disappointing thing. That is a thing by design. You've been made to be human, not God. So don't try to carry what God carries. The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you should do, not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. And do you notice that actually observing these commands as well, by the way, far from them being restrictive and repressive, 
This is actually allowing everybody to flourish, isn't it? And not burn out. It's not just that it's you, it's everybody in your orbit. Those who work for you, those around you in your house. Let them rest too. That you all enjoy being human and honour God. But it also accepts whose you are. Look at verse 11 there. In six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You are his, you are his image bearers. And so, observe the Sabbath to observe the one who has made it. Message for another day. But one of the ways in which we might see the span and the sweep of the story of the Bible is to think that actually it's moving from rest to rest. That if it wasn't for the fall, we would have lived in a constant Sabbath, a constant seventh day. And so Sabbathing now remembers what was and it looks forward to what will be one day. So these first commands here, these vertical commands, the commands that relate to, towards God, they're commands that would help Israel relate to God and represent God distinctly among the nations because God's grace shapes the way that we live. Secondly then, there's another group of commands there that are horizontal, and that is they relate to how we treat other people. Have you a picture of a seesaw? When you're a parent and you sort of, before becoming a parent, you sort of imagine what that'd be like and you imagine sort of taking the kids to the park and, and how that'd be. You don't realise actually how much of that is actually sort of training and much less than doing things more you trying to help them along how to do it. And one of the things is them learning how to use some of the equipment. And the lesson of the seesaw is that it's not all about you. You can't always have it your way. It's not all about you because there's consequences to you just taking a seat. The other person flies up in the air. And so the modern moral maxim that we have, do what makes you happy, cannot work for the very same reason. It has consequences. And it's not all about you. And the horizontal commands here are all expressing that reality that it's not all about you and there's a need to protect everyone. Look at verse, uh, command 5 then, verse 12 here. Honour your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. It's the only command with a promise attached to it that it will go well for you in the land should you honour your parents before you. It's, of course, important, isn't it, to be empathetic that there are many sort of non-nuclear families often not by choice for lots of different reasons, isn't it? Circumstances may have broken things apart and it's right to support rather than judge, isn't it? So that's important to say. However, we cannot and should not avoid recognising and celebrating that God has actually intended to centre society around the family unit. Western society has tried to break people apart from the family just to be isolated individuals. But society actually flourishes as the family unit flourishes. And that is ordered here and designed by God. We find, actually, I think, that this is often subverted in the West. 
think about it in just this way, is that children are often increasingly allowed to rule over their parents and dictate the home. And this is not good, because parental authority reflects God's authority. Paul speaks that there, there are no authorities outside of God, and the authorities that you have are put there by God, and it's put there for your good. It's not good. Parental authority is in and of itself not a bad thing. In fact, it is a good thing. It needs to be used well. It needs to be used carefully. But it's a good thing. And it's not good because it doesn't help children adapt to the world that we live in. A child who's been made a god, not a child, doesn't tend to make for a very healthy adult. And so it's very important, isn't it, for children to be loved to be nurtured, it's very important. But part of that is them knowing that they're not gods, they're not in control, and that's not an attempt to frustrate, that's an attempt to help them. See, a child may always be able to get their way at home, that might be possible, because a parent perhaps is so desperate that their children like them, but they'll come to school, to work, to the world around them one day and realize they can't always have their way and they'll struggle to adapt. A child may be shielded from anything that they don't like at home. We may be able to do that. But in the wider world, we all have to face things we struggle with and that's how we grow resilience. And so here, at root of a healthy society is a healthy home. And so Command 5 is about... uh, the uh, honoring those in authority and honoring those who sacrifice to give you what you need. And then we have a little group again here from six to nine. You shall not murder, verse 13. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not murder. In fact, actually, the word that would be better there, which in the Hebrew it's expressing, is you you shall not manslay. From it, we have a similar term in courtroom of manslaughter. It's not just about murder, but it's that you could kill someone, you know, uh, without it having been necessarily premeditated and intentional, but by negligence or carelessness. And so, by the way, a good day isn't... I didn't murder anyone today. I mean, that is good. That's, that's better than at the end of the day you have. That, that is a bad day. But a good day isn't I didn't murder anyone. It's actually also about protecting and preserving other people's lives, isn't it? And with each of these commandments is that expectation. The apex isn't just that you haven't done it. It's that what if you turn to, to do the opposite to help? Jesus says the same thing, doesn't he? He says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, whoever is angry with their brother, whoever insults them, whoever calls them fool, is liable to judgment. So there's an element of violent intent even there that actually might be much more relatable, I would hope. Hopefully, none of us can can relate to the idea of, of murdering someone. But we may very well be able to relate to the idea of contemplating the thought of doing harm to someone at some point. Don't murder, but don't commit adultery. 
and the weather is about breaking wedlock. We thought there a little bit about parenting and the family unit and the importance of it. And again, I suppose it's drawing upon that idea that don't commit adultery, don't break wedlock, don't break this most important bond and bedrock of the family. And of course, that's something that can happen long before you get to the moment of that. And it can happen without you going so far as that. Again, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say to you, whoever looks with lustful intent has already done that. It's a challenge, isn't it? You shall not steal, command eight. You shall not take what's not rightly yours or not give what you rightly owe. And nine, you shall not give false witness. That translation is much, much more helpful than not lie. Because it expresses the real idea that's going on here. Bearing false witness is by nature about trying to do harm to somebody else because you misrepresent them. That's the idea, right? If it's don't lie, you get into all these really weird things where you think, well, would you have helped Jews through the Holocaust or what have you, you know, where you shouldn't have done that and where you're having to tell a mistruth to do it? And it's a really ridiculous kind of argument to even begin. Yeah, of course you should. Nonsensical to even think twice, isn't it? And the idea here isn't just about that so that you at the end of the day can say, ah, well, I didn't lie. Ah, I can sleep easy. But the idea is don't do someone else harm by misrepresenting them, by slandering, by gossiping. It's focused on one person tearing another person down with words and by nature to build yourself up at the same time. If you want to see it this way, I suppose it's like the passive-aggressive partner to murder. It's like for those who don't sort of feel they have the strength to murder, to do actual physical violence in some way, they'll character assassinate. And so commands six to nine are about doing harm to your neighbor. They're all acted out in some sort of way or other, and they all harm other people, don't they? And these commandments show there's a greater purpose in life than just doing whatever makes you feel good. These commands are here to protect the most vulnerable, Do you see that? And restrain the wealthy, the powerful, the influential. They all have that nature, that these are going to protect those who are most vulnerable and restrain those who are most powerful. And so we finish there with command 10, not to covet. And here that might be something where it's coveting a partner, a person, but actually much of it is non-sexual. And in a way it's a partner to that idea of lust earlier on. Because this could be something that's for a car, for a job, for a house, for a title, for a popularity or social standing. I don't know, on and on really, I suppose. It could be anything, couldn't it? And so command 10 is about wishing harm on your neighbour. It's wanting what they have, and so by nature, wanting them to lose it so you can have it. Wanting to pull it out of their hands. And while all these commands relate to how we treat people, they also expose how we think of God. So thirdly, this this point will be very short and then we'll tie it together at the end. Is there's a struggle here that we all face. 
What is the principle that brings those two sets of commands together? The vertical, the ones that are directed towards God, and those horizontal ones, those that are directed towards others. What brings them together? Well, I think it is that commandments 2 through to 10 would all be kept if only we could keep that first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Again, Martin Luther, thinking on these verses here, says, where the heart is rightly disposed toward God, and this commandment is observed, that first one, all the others follow. If you can keep God as God alone, all those other things will come. If you're struggling with two through ten, it exposes that perhaps you're really struggling with number one. That somehow, some way, something is jostling for position with God. Jesus is approached in the Gospels by a young lawyer aiming to sort of catch him out. He says, which commandment is the most important of all? And so Jesus answered, another way of saying this first commandment, but it comes from the Shema in Deuteronomy. The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is saying in a different way, I suppose, that he sees the law in those two same headings, that there are some vertical commands, there are some commands that are about loving God, commands one through four, and there's the rest that are about loving others, that are horizontal, they're about loving your neighbor as you love yourself. And one is more important, that is loving God, that's the first and the greatest commandment, but that fulfilling that one leads to fulfilling the others. That if you love God, you will love your neighbor. And so Jesus is saying that it is ultimately a faith issue. Again, to come back to Luther and his explanation of this, because it's so helpful. We wind up, right, breaking the horizontal commands, the commands towards loving our neighbor, because we don't ultimately trust God to provide those same things. And so Luther explains a bit of this, what it means to have faith in God alone. And he imagines God saying this to us through these verses here. Whatever you lack of good things, expect it of me and look to me for it. And whenever you suffer misfortune and distress, creep and cling to me. I, yes, I will give you enough and help you out of every need only let not your heart cleave to or rest in any other. We're tempted to steal because we see something that we feel we need so much we can't live without it. We're tempted to bear false witness when we cannot bear the thought of losing standing compared to another. These are things that become functional gods. And when we have them, we feel all is well. And when we don't, we despair of life itself. The core here isn't do these things to be saved, but have faith that you're saved and live like it. 
You see, none of this, and I need you to know this and see this, none of this was and is ever possible for anyone to fully keep. And there are hundreds more laws that will come that expand on all of these things. There's layers upon layers. Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount shows that. You've heard it was said, but I say to you, and it always gets harder, elevates it and shows you there was much more to it than you ever thought. And so it was never the case that anyone found favour with God by keeping the covenant of works. It is not that in the Old Testament we found favour with God by keeping the law, but now God has chilled out through Jesus and there's this grace thing. He doesn't care about justice anymore. No, no. That underestimates your sinful nature and your inability to do it anyway. It overestimates your moral capacity. You really don't have the strength to do that. And it misunderstands God. Having the law, having these commands and all the others that come clarifies what is objectively right and wrong. And so it protects everyone in society from us being subjected to my subjective idea of what morality is. Paul says this, if it had not been for the law, Romans 7, I wouldn't have known sin. The law helps me to know what is right, what is wrong. But... He also tells us that knowing the law helps me know sin, but it doesn't help me stop sinning. In fact, if anything, it gets harder, because now I can't say I didn't know. I do. He says, Romans 7, verse 15 to 20, let me just summarize the important bits. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. The law shows us that we are in trouble and we need someone who can keep it. But notice what Jesus says of the law. Jesus in John's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 46, says, as Pharisees are arguing with him, if you believed Moses... Moses is the one writing this, and this is the writing to which Jesus is referring. You would believe me, for he wrote of me. What does Jesus mean by saying that? Because these laws here, you'll notice, don't obviously name drop Jesus. They don't seem to say anything clearly about Jesus, do they? What he means is this, is that as you read these, it should be clear to you that you are going to fail at this and you need a substitute. He explains elsewhere, Matthew 5, verse 70, before his Sermon on the Mount there, do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We thought about in the Passover that we were, uh, the people were granted a substitute to face the penalty they would have faced that they didn't die because the lamb died for them, a lamb's life for their life. But you and I also need the righteousness that we do not have. And that is given us 
in Christ Jesus. That's where Paul launches his letter to the Romans. Romans 1 verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And listen to why. Why is he confident that it is the gospel message itself that is what saves us and nothing else? For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Or in fact, a more accurate translation of that quote from Habakkuk 2.4 would be, the one who is by faith righteous shall live. So as you hear these commands this morning, do not hear this and think, right, I'm going to pull myself up by the bootstraps and I'm going to be better and this is going to be my best week in such a long time. Don't hear this and think, well, what hope is there for me? I'm such a failure. Why bother trying? No, hear this and turn again to Jesus and trust that he has done this for you. The preacher to Hebrews, as he's kind of bringing his letter towards a close, he recaptures the imagery of those verses towards the end of the reading that Johnny brought, the mountain and the smoke and the glory and the fear in the eyes and the hearts of the people. He recaptures it, and as he's calling these people here to hold firm to Christ, where they're tempted to go back and to return to the temple, he says, we've come to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We should come to the law and realize I'm in trouble because I've not kept this and I'm not going to be able to and I need somebody to for me. If I don't have a substitute, there's a blood that's being asked for here. But we should come to it seeing Jesus. And seeing blood that's been spilt and blood that has been offered so that yours isn't asked for anymore. And so, the most important bit for you to land on and to reflect on this morning isn't those particular individual rules. But look again at verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. When you remember that verse, you will have a fighting chance in response to it of doing command number one. You shall have no other gods before me. When you remember that he is the Lord your God, he has already brought you out of the land of Egypt. He has brought you out of the house of slavery. And when you do that, you'll also follow those other commands imperfectly. But you will, in response to what he's done. And when you fail, you can come back to the glorious truth that verse 2 is still true and start over. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so God's grace shapes the way that we live. Let's pray. As I do, the band will come up and we'll respond to what we've read and heard and reflected on here in song. But let's pray before we do that. Father God, we thank you for your grace towards us. We thank you.